This is Our Voices. I'm Mario Trimble. In order to be a place where everyone in our community feels valued and connected, we first have to ensure everyone believes they belong. These are Our Voices, a joint podcast production from the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusivity Joint Steering Committee. Our Voices shines a light on the unique stories, experiences, and backgrounds of our member leaders so that we can help each other walk together. Miko Brown is a woman who gets things done. This respected trial attorney has represented corporate clients with big results. She's been a partner at several major law firms. She's a former president of the Asian Pacific American Bar Association of Colorado and has been nationally recognized for her Women in Leadership Lecture Series program which she launched in 2013, gathering female legal professionals at all levels for panel discussions on advancing women in law. Recently, Miko started a new path at Airbnb as Associate General Counsel. She sat down with Nicole Sparaza and Courtney Holm and shared the importance of mentorship, advocacy, and balancing law and family. She also gives some insights into how her family's experiences shaped her passion for diversity and civil rights. Hello, welcome to Our Voices. My name is Nicole Sparaza. I am a family law attorney in the Denver metro area. I have my own firm and co-hosting with me today is Courtney Holm. I'm Courtney Holm. I am an attorney at Courtney Holm and Associates in Edwards, Colorado, focusing on mediation, family law, criminal defense, and civil litigation. And today we have joining us Miko Brown, who is in-house counsel at Airbnb. She's also a former partner at some big law firms, and I wanted to welcome her in joining us today. Thank you, Nicole. It's great to be here. We're so happy to have you and talk to you. So the general format of these Our Voices podcasts is who you were, who you are, and who you're going to be in the future. So I guess we'll start off with who you were. Can I know that you have quite a family history on both sides of your family. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. So uh, who I was really has influenced and shaped who I am today and who I want to be in the future. So it's a good place to start. And it really all goes back, I think, to my family heritage. Uh, my dad's side of the family, they were Egyptian Jews. And they had to flee Egypt in the middle of the night because they were being persecuted for their religion, but unfortunately made the not-so-smart choice to go to Italy shortly before (laughs) World War II. Not the best choice for a Jewish family. Um, And so in order to escape the Nazis, they actually had some remote family in Denver, Colorado. And that is how my dad's side of the family ended up in Denver. So we have that going on, my dad's side of the family, and simultaneously my mother's side of the family, uh, who's Japanese, was in uh, Oregon in California. And my uncle, great uncle, Minoru Yasui, um, was the first Japanese American to graduate from the University of Oregon Law School. And he was 26 when he uh, the Japanese curfew laws came down during World War II. And my uncle Min thought that they were unconstitutional. And so at 26, he decided that he was going to be the test case to try and get this law overturned. So he wandered the streets after curfew for a while, but nobody arrested him. So finally, he walked himself into a police station and demanded to be arrested, and they obliged him. He spent the next nine months in solitary confinement, and they stripped him of his citizenship. 
Um, but he was absolutely determined that this law was unconstitutional and he was going to get it overturned. So his case did go all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. And unfortunately, the court decided that in a time of war, you really get to do what you want to, even to your citizens. And so uh, my <sighs> Uncle Min and the rest of his family was put in internment camps. And after um, they were released, Governor Carr was one of the few uh, leaders, and he was, of course, governor of Colorado, was one of the few people who really welcomed Japanese. And so my mom's side of the family, that's how they ended up in Colorado. And my mom and dad actually met on the tennis courts of City Park. Really? <laughs> yes, but they both <laughs> had interesting paths, which probably explains, you know, my my love of tennis and how I grew up. But yeah, they had very different paths to Colorado, but all really rooted in abuse of civil rights and abuse of human rights. And that has really been my passion. Um, and it's kind of who I am and why I do what I do. Miko, can I can I ask you a follow up question on that? So you know, your your mom's family was placed in internment camps. Where in Colorado were they placed? They were actually in Idaho. In Idaho. The in, okay. Yeah, the internment camps in Idaho. Um, but they needed a place to go after. And, you know, there just weren't a lot of states that were welcoming to the Japanese, certainly not a lot of governors. And Governor Carr, I think, was very, you know, unique and very special. And it, it cost him his political career. Um, but he was going to do the right thing as well. And you mentioned your uncle... Minori Yasui. And Mm -hmm. there's an inn of court named after him, isn't there? There is. There is. So after he came to Denver, he opened his own law practice and, you know, really decided to make the pursuit of civil rights. Um, That's what he was going to do. And so there's actually a building on Colfax named after him, um, but was, you know, central in the JACL and the Japanese community and, you know, really fighting for the civil rights of all people, not just Japanese, um, but all of the minorities, because his view really was you hurt one of us, you hurt all of us and you hurt the United States as a whole. What a powerful beginning to your your existence in the world. It was. And, you know, it's it's funny because it's such a rich history and but also at the same time, you know, very painful history, both for my mom's side of the family and for my dad's side of the family. And I really didn't learn about it until I went to college. Um, You know, both sides of the family, the the whole rule of the game was assimilation. And so my mom's side of the family, you know, she's one of six kids. Um, None of them know how to speak Japanese. They were all given very American names, you know, like Susan and Pam and Steve and Chris. Um, And same with my dad's side of the family. He grew up speaking five languages. And the push was to Americanize. And, you know, unfortunately, none of the kids learned any of the foreign languages and really didn't learn anything about, you know, our history. You know, we had bits and pieces of it. But nobody really talked about it. And then when I was um, my freshman year in college, I was taking a history course, and we had to write a paper. Our assignment was to pick a time in US history um, that impacted your family and write about that. And I decided to do World War II because I had an inkling of what my mom's side of the family and dad's side of the family had been through. But it was the first time, and they had to do it because I, it was an assignment, so they had to cooperate <laughs> with me. <laughs> um, but I mean, the 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 sadness and the anger and the emotion. I mean, we're decades later mm-hmm. and it was really opening up some wounds. And that's really when I learned what my family had been through. And it was really at that time that I decided um, I don't want to be a professional tennis player anymore, <laughs> um, but I want to be I want to be a lawyer. And my goal was really to be a civil rights lawyer, just like my uncle Min. 
and and save the world. And that's actually how I ended up picking the University of Pennsylvania Law School um, and Berkeley for undergrad, you know, the sort of home of civil <laughs> rights. But the University of Pennsylvania had a great loan forgiveness program for people who wanted to do civil rights or public service law. Um, so that was really what has you know, pushed me into this profession and, um, you know, why I decided who I wanted to be. That's so intentional, too, to make sure that you're seeking out the best career path for yourself that early on. Mm-hmm. Try. <laughs> <laughs> so how was law school? I got to say, I did not like law school. <laughs> Neither did I. <laughs> I. My husband loved law school. Um and ironically hates being a lawyer. Um, I absolutely <laughs> despise law school, but love being a lawyer. And it's sort of the the joke because, um, you know, and it was interesting. Penn was, it, it's in Philadelphia, which is a very, very diverse city. And I went to Berkeley for undergrad, which truly is, you know, not only diverse, but really people merged. Mm-hmm. And it was very inclusive and very cohesive. Um, and I went into law school, so I'm not, you know, young and naive really at this point. But I went into law school thinking that all of the isms, racism, sexism, you know, all of the sort of bad things were the result of of lack of education. Well, clearly, if you go to University of Pennsylvania, you're not lacking for education. Mm-hmm. Um, and the school, as diverse as it was, and, and the city as diverse as it was, was so incredibly segregated. And hmm. I had, it was just mind blowing to me. You know, at, at the school, there was a table where the African Americans would sit, there was a table where the Orthodox Jews would sit, there was a table where the Koreans would sit. Hmm. And the groups just did not, they didn't come together, they didn't mix. Um, you know, interracial dating was not allowed. <laughs> um, one of my good friends who was African American from Berkeley started dating a white guy, and both sides were ticked off and it broke him up. So, um, you know, I think my mom is really thankful because I I told her, you know, there's nothing that makes you want to come back to Denver than living in Philadelphia for three years. No offense (laughs) to anybody who's listening who's from Philadelphia. Um, But it really made me miss it really made me miss Denver. And it was a weird it was a weird experience. Obviously, I'm, I'm thrilled that I went to that school. It's a great school. And I actually got my clerkship with Judge Kane largely, I think, because I went to University of Pennsylvania. He had had a couple of really good clerks before him that went to Penn. And when I walked in for my interview, he said, you're at Penn. And I said, yes. And he said, you've got the job. So, Whoa. yeah, so I can't knock it, you know, and then Judge Kane, as you know, Nicole, was another, you know, huge influence in my life. He's mm-hmm. actually the one who set me on the path to private practice. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I can't knock Penn. Can you tell us a little bit more about that conversation and the mentorship that you received from Judge Kane? Sure. So, you know, like I, I mentioned, when I went into law school, I was civil rights and human rights and corporate America's evil and corporate law firms are even more evil. Um, <laughs> and Judge Kane was a partner at Holm Roberts and Owen before he was appointed to the bench. And Holm Roberts and Owen, which is now Brian Cave, um, was one of the biggest, most prestigious law firms in Denver back in the day. And I was, you know, waxing on on my high horse about, you know, the only way to do good is to work at the public defender's office or the ACLU. And I would never work at a 17th Street, you know, law firm. (laughs) And Judge Kane said, you know, Miko, don't knock it before you try it. And, you know, who are you to say? You've never worked there. You've never explored what it's like. And, yeah, there are some corporations and there are some law firms that all they care about is money. But there are also a lot of law firms that – 
are really good. They're very socially responsible. They're very civic minded. And Holm Roberts is, is one of them. He said, you know, if you go to the public defender's office or the ACLU, great organizations, but you're helping pretty much one segment of the population. Mm-hmm. You know, that's your that's your public interest work that you do. And I'll also tell you that when you work for certain organizations, you you get labeled as being, you know, sort of a leftist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, yeah. they stereotype you. And so people, you know, come into the conversations with you with a little bit more skepticism and they might not be as open minded because they think that you have an agenda. Um Whereas if you go to a firm like a Home Roberts, mm-hmm. you know, which is sort of much more neutral, they have liberals, they have conservatives, you know, you come into the room, into the conversation, probably with less bias against you in terms of which way you lean and what your agenda is. And on top of that, you know, you've got a lot of resources from these big law firms that you don't have at the, you know, at the public interest um, organizations. And you can really mix and match a bunch of different passions, right? It doesn't have to just be civil rights. It doesn't just have to be criminal defense. You know, you can support Safe House Denver. You can support the soup kitchen. You can, you know, support Urban Peak. You're not tied to one particular organization. And so you have a lot of flexibility. So he said, you know, I just, I think you should try it. (laughs) Um, And, you know, and Judge Kane, incredibly wise. I admire him so much. Um, So I actually did end up getting a summer associate position at Holm Roberts uh, the following summer. And that's where I started my legal career. And he was absolutely right. He was absolutely right. You know, I was able to do so much just because of the resources and the flexibility. Um, but it also makes me think, you know, just how fortuitous everything is, too, because that's where I met, you know, one of my other great mentors of my life, uh, Justice Marquez, who at the time was just Monica Marquez, uh, <laughs> a fourth year senior associate, I think, at HRO, um, you know, who's also sort of helped steer me down, you know, the path that I've been on, um, all very consistent with what Judge Kane did and what, you know, my Uncle Min and my family has done. Um, but it's, you know, it's kind of funny how you end up in the places that you end up. How long were you at Holmes, Roberts, and Mullins? I was there for a little over two years, okay. I believe. Yeah. And I know that you mentioned now Justice Marquez yes. and the mentorship that she provided you. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So, you know, Home Roberts is wonderful as a law firm it was, and this is an ongoing problem to this day. You know, big law firms um, have a lot of, they, they struggle to retain diverse talent and to keep top talent um, who are attorneys of color. And Monica, along with another uh, senior associate, her name was Lisa Gonzalez, Um, you know, really went out of their way for all of the female and attorneys of color who were summer associates, young associates, in terms of mentoring us, guiding us, sticking their neck out for us. Mm -hmm. Um, It was really remarkable. I mean, I've never seen such investment in somebody by relative strangers. You know, I -hmm. I did not know Mm -hmm. Monica for that long. She didn't know any of us really for that long. And I will never forget, you know, one day I'm sitting with her um, at Tuscany Coffee in the (laughs) atrium of of the Wells Fargo building. And, um, you know, and I just looked at her and I said, Monica, you know, don't get me wrong. I love all the mentoring and everything that you do for me. But, you know, you have got a full caseload. Um, You do do a ton of community service. Um, You have family. I mean, I don't know. 
I don't understand, you know, why, <laughs> why are you doing this? Why are you taking so much of your time to, you know, help all of us? And she said, you know, Miko, big law in particular is still such a white male dominated profession. And if we're going to change that, if we're going to um, make a difference, then we, women, attorneys of color, we have got to stick together and we have to have each other's back and we have to do more than our fair share to make sure that these you know, young attorneys get the support and the guidance that they need because it's, it's politics too. It's not just great work. You have to learn how to navigate this. And a lot of attorneys of color and women you know, we haven't been in this profession for as long. We don't know how to navigate it. You don't come out mm -hmm. of the womb knowing how to navigate the politics of a law firm. So she said, you know, and I can still picture her, you know, <laughs> I'm doing this for you now, but you have to promise me now that you're going to do this for the women who come after you. And I looked at her and I just said, I, I promise, I promise I will do that. Um, and since that time, you know, I was a summer associate in two thousand um I, I still hear that I still I still see myself making that promise to Monica well and so you had these great mentors you had Lisa you had Judge Keen Monica Marquez you got this different perspective you got to get on your own high horse and work in the private sector <laughs> what did you do with that what what did you use your your horse how many carts did you pull what kind of things did you do were you a, a good mentor did you get involved in a lot of organizations I, I I hope I was a good mentor um yes I was able to get in in involve myself in a lot of organizations including the Asian Pacific American Bar Association which is where I met Nicole and yes. so many other important people in my life like Kenzo and you know Paul and Faye um, the list goes on and on um but you know I was really I, I've always been looking for opportunities um largely because of what I promised Monica and what my family has, you know, always encouraged me to do, um, of figuring out ways to help those people who come after me, um, because I really do hope it's a domino effect. That's what's, what it's supposed to be. And I think my greatest accomplishment um, in that regard um, really stems from probably the, the low point of my career when I was about to quit the practice of law, quite literally. Um, I was a, a partner at Wheeler Trig O'Donnell. It was 2012, and I, I was a second-year partner at the time. Um, I had just had my third child, so now I have three children under age four. Oof. And as a partner, you know, you've got to have your own book of business, you are expected to mentor. You are still expected to do community service. You are expected to, you know, portray the firm and get yourself out in the community in a positive light. And I was just, I was flailing. I mean, there was no way I would go home and I'm like, how the heck am I supposed to do my work and the business development and mentor and still be a good mom and still be a good spouse? Um, it just really seemed very impossible. And thankfully, right around this time, um, I got a... Um, e-flyer for this American <laughs> Bar Association Women's Leadership Program in San Francisco. And San Francisco is my happy place. It's my favorite city. Um, I will go to any conference in San Francisco. <laughs> um, and so I decided I decided to go without any expectations um, because, you know, I had been going to the Women's Leadership Conferences and the Diversity Conferences for, you know, at this point, a decade. And usually I'd actually come away feeling pretty deflated and depressed mm -hmm. because 
you know, you would just hear how bad things still are and how they're not getting better and the numbers haven't changed. And the takeaway from so many of these meetings was, you know, until this entire structure changes, there's really not going to be meaningful change. And so they, they just weren't, they were educational, you met good people, but you didn't come away feeling particularly inspired or hopeful. And this conference was, I mean, just a total game changer. It was two days. And the difference was they presumed everybody in that conference room knew what the challenges were. There was no need to beat a dead horse. Hmm. And so, you know, they they spent the first five minutes talking about, um, you know, what the challenges are. And then we spent the next two days talking about very practical things that every single person in that room, and it you know, ran the gamut from junior associates to junior partners to senior partners, first-year in-house lawyers, general counsel. I mean, it was a very wide range of lawyers, yet they found a way to give everybody just you know, those tools that they could start doing right then and there, you know, immediately to actually move the needle and to achieve whatever goal you know, the person had set out for themselves. And one of the first speakers, um, who turned out to be another one of my amazing mentors, (laughs) I've been just so lucky in that field, um, her name is Michelle Banks, and she is the former global general counsel of The Gap. Um, But she was one of the first speakers, and she has a son, Dylan, and somebody asked her, you know, how do you how do you find time to do it all? You know, you mm-hmm. you speak, you mentor, you're the global general counsel of The Gap, you're a mom, a, a wife. And she said, the key is finding your why. Figuring out what is it that makes you tick? What is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? And use that why as the foundation and the guidepost for everything that you do. You know, you can't go to every luncheon. You can't go to every charity event. Um, You can't Mm -hmm. mentor everybody. You can't woo every potential client. So find that why and use that as your guideposts in terms of what you do, what you don't do, and how you choose to go about business development, for instance. And so, you know, she made everybody take five minutes to sort of, you know, figure (laughs) out your why. Um, And... You know, my why is to support and empower women and attorneys of color to be leaders and to be able to accomplish what they want to accomplish based on their merit. Um, That is my why. And so I got on the plane home to Denver and thought, I've got to bring this program back to Colorado because it just doesn't exist anywhere. Mm -hmm. And the next day, I walked into Mike O'Donnell's uh, office and I said, Mm -hmm. Mike, I want to start a women's leadership program. And it is going to be my killing multiple birds with one stone. I'm going to use it for my business development. I'm going to use it for mentoring. I'm going to use it for my community service. Um, I really think that I can kill many birds with one stone with this program. And otherwise, I'm just, I'm dying. And Mike, who, you know, is an incredible mentor and friend, um, supported me 100%. So we launched the Women in Leadership Lecture Series program in 2013. It's won a couple of national awards. Um, Whoa. And yeah, and it was, you know, really everything that I wanted it to be. And then when I moved over to Davis Graham and Stubbs um, four years ago now, uh, when I left for Airbnb, they actually, Wheeler Trig let me take the program with me. And now um, two of my mentees are running it, um, which is very cool. Um, so they're keeping the, the 
program alive. That's got to feel so gratifying. <laughs> it is. I have to say, that was, when you look at the gratifying moments of your life, and I, it sort of shocked me, but you know, my my right-hand person at Davis Graham, her name's Jackie Rader, um, just a phenomenal lawyer. And, you know, she, from the day that I started at, at Davis Graham, uh, was working with me side-by-side side on my cases and is just so above and beyond most lawyers that you've ever had the pleasure of working with. And I had built a, a really good book of business by the time that I left um, to go to Airbnb. And because Jackie's so good, all of my clients stayed with Jackie. And so, you know, she was able to inherit a seven-figure book of business. And she deserves it more than anything. But to be able to sort of help somebody launch their career mm-hmm. um, really was one of the coolest things, I think, that I've experienced. That's That's incredible. That's really special. That's not... That's not a story you come by every day, and that's not something that's commonplace. And I think that a big thing that at least I see that has always been that you've always modeled for me is not just making the time for mentorship, but also walking the walk and doing your part for the representation of AAPI attorneys. And it's been really incredible to be a part of because I personally am a beneficiary of a lot of the mentorship and the time that you've taken. Um, But I do have a couple of questions about you managing your kids while being a partner at a large law firm. I know that you had talked about kind of a low point, which was the catalyst for creating this woman leadership series. How did you continue managing personal life, work life, that type of a balance, if there is a balance going forward. Yeah. Work-life balance, I, I, that term makes my stomach cringe. I feel like it was designed to make women feel badly about themselves because <laughs> I, don't, I don't know anybody who's actually achieved work-life balance, but apparently it exists. So somebody's doing it. It's just not <laughs> me. Um, yeah, I, I think of it more of a, of a mix. You know, it's a work-life mix as opposed to a balance, for me at least. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was Michelle's really sage advice in terms of how I was able to manage both of them. So a lot of my um, business development, what I learned through this this Wills program is, you know, the women in-house lawyers, I, I kind of thought when you went in-house, like you, had, you didn't have to network anymore. You know, that was kind of the, the end of it, um, which just isn't true at all, which makes sense, right? Because even if you're in-house, you might not stay at that job forever. The company might get bought, it might go under. Mm-hmm. And so these women in-house lawyers have to, you know, they have to keep up their networks as well. And they have to stay active and engaged in the community. And a lot of these women also are struggling with trying to spend time with their families and spend time with their spouse and do their work. So we're all actually struggling, I think, with the same, you know, tensions and time restraints. And so one thing that I started doing so I wouldn't have to choose was doing family events for my business development. Hmm. So um, and then I would pair that with like a charity event. So for instance, Genius. <laughs> right? like there's the Mother's Day fun run, you know, every year. And I can't remember what charity all of the money goes to. But I would basically invite a bunch of in-house women and their spouse and their kids to run with me and my family. And we would do a fun run. And then we would go back to my house and have brunch. And 
you know, it didn't it didn't feel like business development. It didn't feel like work because mm-hmm. these people were my friends and my kids were friends with their kids and our spouses were friends with each other and we're in the fresh air and doing something for charity. Um, and so I really started trying to pair all of my business development with family activities. So the in-house people don't have to make that choice. Um, and it just builds also a trust. You know, I mm-hmm. think it's it's interesting because a lot of people are very wary about working with friends, you know, mixing business and pleasure. And I totally get that. I will say for me personally, um, some of my biggest clients were some of my closest friends. Um, and most of my clients, I ended up being very good friends with and knowing their family and knowing their kids because of the way that, you know, I would do my sort of ongoing business development. And it mm-hmm. made it so much better because there was that trust there. You know, Jennifer, Jess, Kolka, who was at Excel Energy, who was one of my first big clients, you know, Jennifer knew that I would take a bullet for her. Um, and I think there's something when, and now me being, you know, in-house counsel, <laughs> Jackie would take a bullet for me. And so there's just that level of comfort that I know the job is going to get done well um, and that nothing is going to be missed that I think actually really helps. Mm -hmm. But that was, you know, Michelle's advice of killing as many birds with one stone as possible. Um, So that's sort of one example. Well, you certainly, I've heard you say a few times, kill two birds with one stone. You are one of the most efficient people (laughs) that I think I've ever spoken with. And you're so smart at being able to monetize those things or be able to uh, divide those things over the same time. How are you doing that now as you are now? Um, You know, who are you now? Right now you're working at Airbnb. How are you managing that? Yeah. Since you're a little bit outside of of the regular realm of law or what people generally consider when they think of lawyers. So how are you bringing that all in now and managing that even better? Yeah, I'm failing miserably right now at that. <laughs> I'm going to be totally honest. Can we just blame it on pandemic? I was. I, we can't. Unfortunately, we cannot blame it on the pandemic. Um, you know, I'm in this space where I, I started this new job in August, and it's been a remote onboarding because the office has been closed. So not only is this my first in-house counsel job, um, I'm trying to learn the job. I'm trying to you know, get to know my team and the people I work with. I'm trying to learn how to use a Mac computer and Gmail because that's what they use, which has probably been the biggest struggle. Um, and I mean, I am I am barely keeping my head above water, I got to be honest. And I, I called, I report to the deputy general counsel, his name is Bart Rubin. Um, and I called him last Friday and I said, this is the second time in my career, but I am raising my hand and crying mercy. Um, because it's just, it's, it's too much. I'm barely getting my work done. I don't feel like I'm doing, I don't feel like anybody's getting the best Miko. I feel like, you know, the, Mm -hmm. the, my clients in house are getting, you know, 50% of the best Miko. My family is getting 5% and I'm working seven days a week. So there's not much more that can be done. So, you know, forget about doing any of my diversity and belonging work, forget about doing any of my mentoring um, or civic engagement. I mean, it is it is survival time right now, and this is exactly how I felt after I had my my third child, and I was in that really dark time um, before I went to San Francisco. Um, and I was just I I remember just crossing my fingers because I really was quite engaged in the community before I sort of had that dark time, and I was just you know crossing my fingers that gosh, I hope this community is still here and open for me when I come up for air. 
Um, and that is one of the reasons why I think I love that I chose Denver to practice law and the APABA community, the Colorado Women's Bar Association, you know, it is just the most welcoming, supportive community. And when I reemerged, they were waiting, you know, with arms open for me. And I'm so appreciative of that. And I'm really hope that the same thing happens this time <laughs> because I have not been a good, I have not been a good anything, honestly, since August, but I'm trying and I I'm, have faith that I'll get there. Well, I have faith that you'll get there. And if we need to book an Airbnb in San Francisco <laughs> Love it. to kickstart it, certainly I'm sure that could be arranged. Yes, an off-site meeting. <laughs> I think we could make it to a jewelry convention or something there. <laughs> I actually happen to love jewelry, so that's fine. No, this work from anywhere has really, I, I, and I honestly, I don't know what it's going to look like. You know, our office is closed until at least September. Um, so I don't know what it's going to look like after. Hopefully at some point I get to meet my team in person. Um, but it is it is weird not ever having met the people that you work with face-to-face. So uh, what was the catalyst of you making that transition from being a partner at Davis Graham and Stubbs into going in-house at Airbnb? Was in-house something that you always thought was on your radar that you would do someday? It was never on my radar. I thought they were going to have to carry me out of, you know, Davis Graham in my coffin. I love that firm so much. Um, <laughs> but, you know, again, it's just another great example, I think, of just how things in your past come back and have an impact on your future and, and who you are now. So when I started the Wills program in 2013, um, I wanted to do a panel discussion on how to convince white males of the importance of diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. And everybody said, oh my gosh, you have to meet Rich Bayer. Uh, Rich at the time was the chief legal officer of Liberty Media. And they said, you know, this is his, this is his jam. And so that is how I met Rich um, through this program. And he was on my panel. And then he became... You know, everything that I have accomplished, I feel like, in the past five years, every important decision that I've made, um, including making the leap to Davis Graham, is directly tied back to Rich. Mm. He, he became that important of a mentor to me. And he ended up leaving Liberty Media and going to Airbnb, where he is now mm. the chief legal officer. And so in January... Um, you know, my husband, he calls my practice and private practice blood and guts law. You know, I just, <laughs> if I had a dead person or a main person, you know, those were the, those were the cases that I, that I handled. And so Rich called me in January and said, you like blood and guts? Do I have the job for you? We have shootings, we have stabbings, we have sex trafficking, we have, you know, every parade of horribles you could ever imagine. Um, what do you think? What a sales pitch. Yeah. And, you know, I, Rich, aside from just being an important mentor to me, I mean, is widely regarded as one of the, you know, best chief legal officers in the country. Mm -hmm. I think he actually got that award once. And so, you know, I, people thought I was crazy, right? I mean, you're going to go, you're going to leave a thriving private practice to go to a travel company in the middle of a pandemic when the company has lost 80% of its business in eight weeks and just laid off 25% of its workforce, you know, are you crazy? And the only thing I could tell people was, you know, I, as I mentioned, I grew up playing tennis. If Chris Everett called me and said, I want to coach you, the answer is yes, period. Um, you know, and I, I knew Rich and I knew he would never, ever ask me to make a move that would be bad for my career. If he asked me to join him, there was a reason for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I started researching the company and the company is actually a walking diversity and belonging 
I won't say experiment, but I have never felt such value alignment with a company in terms of its commitment to diversity and inclusion and doing the right thing. And the opportunity to be, you know, I, I handled their community trust. I'm the head of the community trust legal team, which is, aside from the blood and guts, it's also the civil rights. Um, and so I actually am a civil rights lawyer kind of in, <laughs> in a sense now. But, you know, there was the opportunity to work with Rich and to work at a company where I just felt such value alignment um, was an opportunity that I just could not could not pass up, even though people thought I was just out of my mind. Um, so here I am. By the way, Chris Everett is one of the only celebrities I've ever met. Really? Yes. Jealous. It was at Mar-a-Lago, believe it or not, in West Palm Beach, Florida. How funny. Yes. That is very funny. That is. Jealous. She seemed very nice. She took a photo with me. I had to play her her sister, Claire, lived in Aspen. And so every summer I had a tournament in Aspen. So my my claim to fame is I beat Chris Everett's sister, Claire. Wow. (laughs) That's not something everybody can say. It is not. It is not. That is true. Um, so, yeah, I've just been really lucky that a lot of the sort of fortuitous choices that I have made have put me, I mean, really what the key is, is just put me in front of really good people who ended up becoming, you know, pivotal, pivotal people in my life, like Rich and Justice Marquez and Judge Kane. It all works out. You've opened a lot of doors. <laughs> A lot of doors. And, and Miko, you seem like you are so self-aware. So so recognizing that this is a time you've got to kind of pull back, put your head down, figure out the new job, and then come up for air and you go back to these organizations when it's time. What are the things that you do to kind of power through these moments, whether it's self-care, whether it's focus? What are the things that get you to that next point? <laughs> you know, and my therapist told me to stop doing this. But uh, <laughs> but it's like, you know, no matter how bad my day, my worst day is better than most people's best day in the world. You know, I mean, my baseline is I have my health. I have an amazing family. I have food. I have a job. I have a home. That is That is baseline for my worst day. That is an absolute gift to a lot of people. And I try and remember that. I try and keep I try and keep that in perspective. And also, you know, if Uncle Min can can power through nine months in solitary confinement, I think I can make it through a bad day at Airbnb. You know, um, if my family can escape in the middle of the night from Egypt with everything that they own in a you know sack on their back, um, mm-hmm. you know the the brief that Rich didn't like, I'll do better. But, you know, it's just trying to have, I think, some perspective and to remember those things. Um, and then the light at the end of the tunnel, you know, it, you will, my, my favorite Peloton instructor, Robin Arzon, who I just found out is going to be the keynote speaker <laughs> yes, at the I Women's Foundation. That. I was like, I need to buy tickets. <laughs> yes. Um, oh, my gosh. I'm so excited. I'm so starstruck. Um, but, you know, her, what she says frequently in her rides are, you've survived 100% of your worst days. Mm-hmm. And I try and keep that in mind because I know what's waiting. I know this community is going to be there for me when I emerge. Um, so that's that's what keeps me going. So I know that you've talked a little bit about the time when you will reemerge. So I do want to talk a little bit about what's next for you. Is there anything on your to-do list that you haven't yet checked off? Do you have bucket list items? <laughs> 
Are you going to create another leadership program? Yeah. Sign me up. You know, <laughs> I, I have to say, and this is one of the things that I, I really love about Airbnb, which was just very illuminating to me. They are so ahead of the game um, in terms of their their programs, their strategies for, um, you know, building inclusive teams and an inclusive organization. I would really love to be able, when I come up for air, to take the lessons learned from Airbnb and to take some of their programming and what they do and share it with law firms here in particular and other companies um, because I think there's a lot, there's a lot to learn. And I think one of the problems, you know, where there hasn't been as much change, unfortunately, with the numbers in private practice and the in-house legal departments in, in Colorado is we keep on trying the same things, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, everybody's got a diversity committee. You know, everybody has a women's initiative. And I've always found it really interesting that, you know, especially having been a trial lawyer, you know, um, where our job is to pull off the impossible. You know, you would never tell a client if you drew a bad judge, like, sorry, we got a terrible judge, might as well just, you know, mail it in. (laughs) Um, Or, oh, gosh, you know, we just got a really bad ruling, nothing we can do. No, you you would never, ever do that as as a trial lawyer. But in the space of diversity and inclusion, I hear so many excuses as, well, Denver's just not a very diverse place. Oh, we just don't have, you know, people of color applying for these jobs. And it's accepted. Mm-hmm. And in no other space in private practice for the good law firms and the good lawyers would that ever be accepted. You would never make that excuse and just, you know, nothing we can do about it. These, This is the, you know, hand we were dealt. And so I'm really... Airbnb's got some great strategies for holding people accountable and not letting you just fall back on the, well, just we didn't get a diverse applicant pool, so I guess we're just going to, you know, have to forego our diversity goals. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially now that we're in a time, you know, of COVID, and I mentioned I just got my second shot yesterday, you know, we put man on the moon and developed a vaccine in like nine months. Mm-hmm. Surely we can solve diversity and inclusion issues. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's a priority, right? Mm-hmm. It's priority and it's not willing to accept excuses and to make excuses. And we just somehow have to figure out a way to do that for, you know, private practice and for companies. Um, and I don't know what the answer is, but I, I think there's a lot to be learned from Airbnb um, and what it's doing. So I hope I can bring that to the table when I emerge. That's quite a hefty bag you got on your back. <laughs> It's good for core strength. <laughs> Maybe we should look and see an Airbnb spot in San Francisco where we can all go and make this plan. I love it. I love it. Brainstorming session. They've got very inspirational, um, you know, high in the clouds and like Montecito or something. <laughs> I've seen your Airbnb Zoom backgrounds. Yeah, it's beautiful, right? <laughs> very beautiful. Well, that is so impressive, uh, Miko. You have done so much. I know there's a lot more in the future. And we're just so thankful of you taking this time with us today and and sharing this insight with us. Especially post-second shot. Yeah, I might not be able to get off this chair, but (laughs) (laughs) we'll do it. No, it is such a pleasure um, to be here. And thank you for giving me the chance to talk with you and to get out of my little shell and just to remember you know we just need these reminders that there's a lot more out there than just you know what's sort of on our day's to-do list well thank you thank you thank you thank you
This has been Our Voices. For more information on today's guest or to get involved, please check out the CBA podcast page at cobar.org slash podcast. That's C-O-B-A-R dot org slash podcast. This podcast series was created by members of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. Our Voices is a collaborative effort of the EDI Joint Steering Committee messaging team, including Mallory Revel, Linda Moss, Bonnie Schreiner, Mallory Hasbrook, Mo Watson, Mario Trimble, Courtney Holm, and Emmy Lopez, with our CBA Communications Team Director, Heather Folker, and Manager, Charles McCarvey. Our recording engineer is Rick Pontelion of Lionsbridge Recording. Our producer and editor is Courtney Holm, with theme and introduction by Mario Trimble. This podcast is made possible because of the support of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. On behalf of all of us, thanks for listening to Our Voices.